Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, September the 20th, 2023. On Monday of this week, I uh, had the privilege, the honor, of having a very distinguished Harvard University professor of Latin American studies and political science, Steve Levitsky, on the show. He is the co-author of a new book called Tyranny of the Minority. Uh, he's also the co-author of the best-selling How Democracies Die. And the way I describe the show, uh, and, and these are my words, not his, uh, Tyranny of an ethnocratic minority, Stephen Levitsky, on what an increasingly broken American political system has to learn from the democracies of Brazil and Argentina. Uh, this idea of an ethnocratic minority, tyranny of an ethnocratic minority, seemed to me the premise uh, of Levitsky's uh, new book, uh, Tyranny of the Minority. Well, I'm thrilled that uh, Steve's co-author, Daniel Ziblatt, another very distinguished professor of political science um, from Harvard University, is joining me on the show today. So I've got two Harvard people in three days. Someone is smiling on me. Uh, Daniel, this notion, as I said, you're a, a scholar of European politics rather than Latin American politics, but my language of describing America now as a tyranny of an ethnocratic minority, is that fair? That's certainly one of the driving forces of what's happening in the U.S. is this kind of uh, racial, racially polarized party system. I mean, is the way that political scientists would describe it, where you have one party that's highly diverse, uh, kind of rainbow coalition party, the other party overwhelmingly still, even despite some kind of recent trends, overwhelmingly white uh, and primarily Christian. Uh, and so when you have parties that are polarized along racial and ethnic lines, that can be very dangerous as the history of ethnic conflict around the world shows. So, you know, the, the interest really is part of it is driven by, I mean, the forces driving the Republican Party are in some sense driven by this sense of displacement uh, that people perceive with an increasingly diverse and equal society. And that I think that we make the case, at least, that that's in part what's driving the, the radicalization of the Republican Party. But at the end of the day, you know, figures like Mitch McConnell, um, you know, the Speaker of the House, Republican Party leaders are acting out of partisan interest uh, as much as anything else. I mean, they, they want to stay in office. They want to win elections. That's what uh, politicians do. I mean, that's fine. That's what democracy is all about. But what we find increasingly is that a political party that can't win a majority uh, that represents that group that you've just talked about uh, is finding ways of staying in power uh, when it doesn't win majorities. Isn't this, though, um, Daniel, always the nature of American politics? I've been rereading uh, Rick Perlstein's three-volume history of Reagan and, 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 and Nixon, Nixon land, Reagan land. And it doesn't seem as though in many ways that much has changed in American politics over the last 40 or 50 years. Everyone's still fighting the culture wars. Race still dominates. Um, the specter of racism still bubbles under the surface. What has changed over the last 50 years? I think there is. you have a point that there are these continuities, but I also think we have to be uh, alert to the changes that have taken place. So 
you know, the Republican Party uh, beginning really after the New Deal, I won't go back that far, uh, but at least since the Goldwater era in the 1960s, the Republican Party increasingly saw an opportunity as the Democratic Party embraced civil rights uh, and sought the full inclusion of all Americans into the political system. The Republican Party, or factions within the Republican Party, saw an opportunity to become the party uh, defending white uh, segregationist interests in the South. And so the Republican Party had no voice in the South, had no, barely, won, barely won elections in the South. And beginning in the 60s, 70s, even into the 80s, began to make inroads and began to make these appeals, the kind of cultural appeals around race, increasingly around abortion and other uh, cultural issues like this, uh, sought out these voters. Uh, but the Republican Party remained a coalition. I mean, a figure like Nixon, uh, even a figure like Reagan, um, but even more so, I would say Nixon was a kind of uh, candidate who could pull the different strands of the party together. I mean, he kind of would draw upon the Nelson Rockefeller, more liberal wing of the party, some elements of which had actually voted for the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, as well as these more reactionary elements. And so Nixon, in a way, held together this coalition. Reagan did as well. I mean, there was a little bit more of a the triumph of the of the right wing of the Republican Party. I mean, it was no accident that when, uh, we, as we recount in the book, when Reagan announced his candidacy, he went to, you know, he went to a, 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 a county fair in the South where uh, that Pearlstein describes uh, really nicely uh, as this kind of symbolic gesture to say, you know, I'm on the side of the state's rights uh, segregationists, the old segregationists. So, th but, th but this remained a coalition. I mean, through George Bush Sr., it's a coalition, I mean, where he kind of tried to view himself anyway as from the more moderate wing of the party. By the time you get to Trump, uh, that faction of the party has taken over. So the difference is that whereas in the past, he's, this was a coalitional party, by the time we get to the present day, the, the kind of the, the base, the radicalized base has taken over the party. And so I think that's a significant difference. That is a significant difference. Do you think you're arguing in the book, um, Daniel, that the Republican Party is, is, is consciously seeking a tyranny of the minority, that it recognizes that it's never going to be a majority party again? Although anytime anyone ever says that, I always suspect that things change very quickly and you never know what's going to happen in politics. Uh, but they're actively trying to transform or game the system so it becomes a tyranny of the minority. This is not a book like your previous one and like that previous generation of books that focuses on Trump. Your book focuses on the Republican Party itself, and it mostly sidesteps Donald Trump. Yeah, so, you know, I, I wrote a book before all of these called Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy, which really focused on actually 19th century Britain and Germany and conservative politics and the role of conservatives in the reaction to the rise of democracy. And so that, that book, writing that book has always alerted me to, or alerted me to the importance of conservative parties and conservative parties that uh, comply with democracy or that go along with democracy. I mean, 19th century British Tories were no great fans of democracy in the early days. I mean, a figure that I write about in that earlier book, Lord Salisbury was really an opponent of democracy, but over the course of the 19th century, acclimatized himself to it, figured out that they, his party could win. And once they realized they could win sometimes, then democracy wasn't as threatening. And so I think similarly today, the Republican Party is a party that would like to win elections, I mean, all else equal, but has difficulty doing it because of the nature of its, of its base and the nature of the appeals that it makes to hold that base together. Um, and so they seek, as any politician does, they seek out ways of winning. Um, 
you know, whether there's a kind of cognitive dissonance in people's minds that, you know, we're we claim to live in a democracy, but we're actually not winning majorities. You know, I'm not quite sure. I don't, I can't really get into the minds of uh, a lot of these leaders, but I think there are some clues. And, and one of the things, you know, all of this talk about, you know, we live in a republic, not a democracy. Uh, that's a way in a sense of kind of dealing with the cognitive dissonance of, you know, we live, we, we thought we leave, believe in democracy, but actually we no longer can win majorities. So we have to come uh, kind of come up with these reconstructions of what kind of system we live in that justify the fact that we can't win in majority. So, you know, I don't think any uh, Republican politician is going to say we live in a tyranny of the minority and that's a great thing. I think they will say they live in a republic, but I think their conception of what a republic is often is essentially a system in which majorities don't uh, govern. And, you know, Democracy is certainly more than majority rule, but, you know, you need to at least have some majority rule as a prerequisite for democracy. So I think that's, in a way, how people cope with this contradiction. There still is, uh, Daniel, a traditional strain of republicanism within the party. Mike Pence today said that uh, China is close to becoming an evil empire, which sounds very traditionally republican, um, one often reads these these pieces, particularly by pollsters, that suggest that Hispanics and some African Americans are actually relatively friendly to traditional Republican thinking, the, the, the Mike Pence view of the world, shall we say. Is it conceivable in the next 15 or 20 years that the Republicans win back 20, 25 percent of Hispanic or African American voters? In principle, it should be. I mean, what parties are supposed to do? I mean, one thing I would say, Mike Pence, what is his support in the Republican primary? Like uh, less than less than one percent. Yeah. So this, you know, at most, probably him and his wife. Yeah. So so that this, you know, if we call this a traditional Republican stance, it's not it's not finding much traction. Um, Although it is getting headlines. Yes. On right. Reuters for, for better or worse. Yeah. So. So, but to your question about could the Republican Party change? I mean, I you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, even though I'm not a Republican myself, I think we need uh, any democracy needs competition. I mean, one of the things that uh, the kind of bread and butter of a democracy is there's competition for power. Two parties competing for office, each with a viable chance of winning, uh, winning majorities. Um, and I think we're in a situation today where the Republican Party is not able to win national majorities. Certainly, they're able to win majorities in certain states. I mean, that's there's no question about that. But in, it's given the diversity, you know, the vastness of, of the United States geographically terms of its population, the Republican Party has real difficulty winning national majorities, both in terms of the presidency, I and mean, it has only won the popular vote once since 1988. Uh, in terms of the Senate, it's you know rarely won popular majorities in these six-year cycles in which the Senate's reconstituted. And it, it, the Republican kind of mindset controls the judiciary without having one, you know, so that justices are often appointed by presidents who don't win majorities and uh, confirmed by senates that don't represent majorities. So the party's not able to win majorities. At the end of the day, I think it would be great for American democracy if both parties could compete because then they'd be fighting over real issues. Now, the path to that is by reaching out to, to more diverse voters. And most parties, when they lose elections, they regroup and they figure out a way to win like a firm or a baseball team. You have a losing season. You come up with a new strategy. The Republican Party is not doing that. You know, so I think the degree to which it could reach out to all sorts of different voters, whether African-Americans, Latinos, whatever, independent voters, moderate voters, that would actually ultimately be, uh, I think, a healthy sign for American democracy. Um, they can't do that right now because they have an agenda 
that is dominated by white grievance, by a kind of re combined with a kind of libertarian so far, this is their primary economic stance, libertarian economic stance is not particularly popular. And so, you know, you can have, in Florida, you have some Latino vote, you know, voters who are often immigrants or the, or the children of immigrants from uh, Latin American countries that have experienced really uh, authoritarian left-wing governments or some Latino voters in South Texas, which are primarily rural areas where one would expect uh, Republicans to do well. The party's doing okay in the, at the kind of marginal, at the margins, but I think there's a tendency for pollsters to kind of take short-term blips and to kind of read broad sweeping trends into these. And so until the evidence really shows that they can reach out to these voters, I don't think, I don't take it too seriously. Again, that said, I, you know, at some level, it may, may be a positive development if this were to happen. And so I think we have to think about ways of allowing both parties to compete to win a majorities. One of the interesting things I found about reading your books, a very uh, interesting book, is the way in which you interpret race uh, into everything. You talk about white grievance. If, if the majority of white people vote for the Republican Party, does that inevitably make it a racial party, an ethnographic party, in the same way perhaps as if um, the majority of African Americans vote for the Democrats? Does that make it a, a racial party? I, 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 the the logic is is hard to figure out. I, I don't know how you you yeah, feel yeah. about it. I I wasn't sure what to make of your focus on ethnicity, and the way in which, in, at least it seems in in your and Steve's view, uh, it defines these parties. Yeah, I, I mean the, the the parties have, you know, remain coalitions of different interests and groups. Um, you know, the Republican Party is certainly you know pushed. I mean, one of the things that Trump did was, you know, the, his one accomplishment, if you want to call it that, is to reduce taxes massively and to appoint judges uh, kind of who are going to be pro-business judges. I mean, so there, there is a strong pro-business side to the Republican coalition uh, that represent, I mean, I, I'm not even sure if I call it pro-business, but certainly pro, you know, for people who have a lot of money, the Republican Party is doing their bidding. So I think that's undoubtedly a big part of the, the appeal of the party to certain segments. And so people are willing to overlook some of the other stuff because they're able to get tax cuts and so on. So, but I would say um, that, that race clearly plays an important role in American society. I wouldn't say that any party that w wins a lot of white voters is necessarily a party of white racial grievance. I mean, through, through you know, the, the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, both parties were overwhelmingly white parties and race was not something they were often, you know, the Republican Party part wasn't a party of, you know, so overtly a party of white racial grievance. I think what's happened is as American societies become more diverse, you know, if you have to look at what, what, how they're appealing to voters. And if, you know, the appeal to voters is kind of caravans of immigrants coming across the border, um, which, you know, the Republican Party seems to trot out at every midterm election, um, sometimes with not very great success. Uh, but they, this, this is a kind of a sign of a party of white grievance or, or a kind of anti-immigrant, anti uh, you know, which has great resonance with European political parties that take a similar kind of stance on immigration. So I think race is very much at the center of what the Republican Party is doing. It's not the only thing that the party is doing, but as long as the party kind of tries to make the, the case that it's a party protecting a kind of way of life that is under siege because of ethnic diversity, uh, and, you know, and, and I think gender becomes plays a role in this as well. I mean, I wouldn't want to only talk about race. I mean, gender, transgender issues, these kinds of 
notion, I mean, the essential notion is that society is changing very rapidly and we want to defend the status quo. So to that degree, I think the party is, uh, is a party, at points, a party of white racial reasons. We are speaking with Daniel uh, Zieblatt, the co-author of Tyranny of the Minority. He's an expert on European politics. I want to take a short break. And after the break, I want to talk about what America can and can't learn from European democracies and perhaps uh, European authoritarian systems. Uh, over the break, I want to thank uh, the sponsor of this show, uh, a wonderful new podcast, which has been started by a friend of mine. I think it launches today. Uh, it's called uh, Disorder, and it's put on by Jason Pack. Um, uh, he's been on the show before, uh, and it's also hosted by the British diplomat Alexandra Hall Hall. The podcast drills down into the central dynamics of key global challenges that our listeners, keen on listeners, care about, like AI, climate change, the war in Ukraine and populism, which we're talking with Daniel about today. Uh, the disorder pod is unique in that it seems to present a unified theory of the key features of our global system by engaging storytelling and discussions with world-leading experts, senior diplomats, cultural icons, and opinion formers. A lot of them have actually been on Keen On, uh, like uh, Anne Applebaum, Brian Klass, uh, Jonathan Powell. So I would strongly recommend that you subscribe to uh, Jason's new show, uh, Disorder, an essential listen if you want to make sense of our disordered uh, but fascinating world. And now we're back with uh, my guest today, uh, Daniel Zieblatt, the author of Tyranny of the Minority. Uh, I'm sure that actually, uh, Daniel, uh, you'll end up on the Disorder show. I'm sure you know Jason. Uh, let's focus on... Europe. Uh, in my conversation, as I said, with uh, with uh, with um, your co-author Steve Levitsky, uh, he talked to me about what an increasingly broken American political system has to learn from the democracies of Brazil and Argentina, which was quite striking, particularly on the constitutional or absence of the constitutional front. Your book focuses on the archaic nature of the American constitution and why it threatens democracy. What do you think Americans can and can't learn from uh, from European political systems? And don't just talk about Denmark, Daniel. We don't want to hear any more about Denmark these days. What about Norway? Is that, yeah, yeah so, I guess you can have Norway, but not Denmark. Yeah. So, you know, look, I mean, this is really the heart of our book. I mean, we're talking about race and so on. I mean, these are these are important issues, too. But I think the main message we really want to get out with our book is to think about the, the role of the Constitution in in the United in American history and in the current moment. And you know, I have to begin by saying that you know I'm a great admirer of the U.S. Constitution. It's it was a remarkable document when it was written. In many ways, a revolutionary document. You know, and this is not just a caveat. I mean, this is really critical to understanding where we are. I mean, the the threats that have um, have come to democracies around the world, let's say in Hungary or even in Israel today. Um, in some sense, our constitution protects us from those because of divided power, the checks and balances, our federal system, all of these, you know, the kind of deconcentration of power is, is a great bulwark. Um, and so I think that there's, there's real virtue in that. That said, I mean, there are certain features of our constitution, which I think at the current moment are uh, exacerbating the tensions at another level. And so that's what I kind of want to emphasize. I mean, so when faced off with a, with a kind of anti-democratic 
force within a democracy. And the United States, of course, is not the only country to face this. You know, I think the alternative for Germany in Germany is one. Uh, you know, uh, you know, not maybe not every populist party in Europe is a threat to democracy. I mean, they may, you may not like what they say about immigration, but many of them are. I mean, many of them are threats to democracy. I mean, I think certainly Viktor Orban's party has proven to be a threat to democracy in Hungary. So the question is, if you're in a democracy, how do you deal with this? And, you know, there's different ways of dealing with it. And I think European democracies have dealt with this in different ways uh, than we have. And maybe before even getting to the Constitution, if I might just say two things that we can learn from European democracies is, you know, that and, and, and really more in the short run. I mean, the one thing that a lot of European democracies are doing when based off against anti-democratic forces is a kind of strategy of containment where political parties uh, of the center get together and keep out the the anti-democratic extremists by forming grand coalitions uh, that are often uncomfortable, that are often not particularly popular, um, but that do they do have the benefit of keeping these parties out of power, at least in the short run. And so that's something that I think we've actually seen signs of in the United States. It's much more difficult in a two-party system to do this. But if you think of the 2016, especially the 2020 election, where you have kind of never Trump Republicans rallying to support Joe Biden. In a sense, this is the strategy of containment at work. I is think this, um, uh, we, we did a show uh, yesterday um, with uh, uh, Chenka Ugya. Is, um, uh, I'm sure you, you, you're, you're familiar with his work. Um, he's a left-wing uh, Democrat. Justice is coming. I think he, there are people on the left, Daniel, who are very critical of that because they they, they would argue, I don't want to put words into no. uh, Cenk's uh, mouth, but it, he's got enough words of his own. But um, the idea that we have to become hysterical over Trump and, 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 and essentially join together and lose any political identity, is there a downside to that? Certainly there is. And so I think it, at best, it's a short-run strategy. I mean, what it does is it, you know, but when fate, you know, so, you know, look, I mean, Germans in the 19, early 1930s, there were some Germans who thought the same thing. You know, we don't, we, you know, the, the communists need to stand up for themselves. The social Democrats, we can't work with the social Democrats. We'll call them social fascists. And Hitler came to power in 1932. So, I mean, you know, that's obviously, I'm not trying to draw a direct analogy to the United States, but the point is under certain conditions, short run coalitions may be necessary. The downside of it that I recognize is that it, it, reduces political competition. I mean, the essence of democracy in large part is about political competition. If you, if the main parties get together, this is kind of collusion. You know, this is, would be as if, you know, Samsung and Apple got together and to keep out the small phone, cell phone companies, right? I mean, this is not, this is not promoting of competition, but, you know, for the short run, it may be a necessary strategy, but I don't think that this is the, the, the kind of way we, this is not a viable long run strategy. Similarly, there's another strategy the European, and actually just to say, I mean, from the European context, you know, a country like Austria where grand coalitions governed for decades, this, you know, exacerbated the problem because it reinforced the idea that, you know, populists are being excluded and voters sort of felt like this is collusion. And so I wonder if the same is happening in France also. Yeah, that's right. I think that's right. You know, and so the, the, you know, I mean, part, you know, you, you know, Macron's government, you know, came into power, um, you know, it was not a real part, not based on a real party, you know, and people sort of out of desperation, you know, one time it's fine. But, you know, if you do this election after election, it begins to create problems. You need to have viable competition, you know, alternative views, you know, uh, and so on. So another strategy that's often used by European democracies is this strategy of militant democracy, where, again, this emerging after World War II, that especially in Germany, uh, embedded in the Constitution is this ability of 
uh, of Ministry of Interior to open investigations of political parties that violate, that seem to be an attack on the Constitution or democracy. Court procedures undertaken, parties can be, you know, investigated and ultimately even banned. Um, this is also, you know, something used against fascist parties in the 1950s, against communist parties. This is also something that is a very dangerous weapon because it can be easily abused. Uh, you know, the idea, you know, this during the 19, certainly during the 1950s in the United States and the Red Scares. Uh, this is something that, you know, good actors can be targeted by political elites and this, these instruments can be abused. But it is a tool that's available to European democracies. And, you know, I think Americans have only now recently come to discover it's a tool that exists in the United States, much less well developed in the 14th Amendment. And this idea that Trump could be banned from running for office uh, because of this uh, the, uh, section of the 14th Amendment that emerged after the Civil War that said insurrectionists can't hold federal office. Um, so, you know, and I, I mean, I tend to think that would actually be a mistake in the current setting in the U.S. because, you know, I'm not, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but my sense is that there's not enough of a kind of history of jurisprudence on this. You know, essentially we have this constitutional doctrine and then secretaries of states are going to run with it. It's dangerous. So I think these are, this is also potentially a mistaken strategy. So what, what is the way forward? I think the way forward, and I think European democracies also offer lessons here, is, uh, you know, since 1945, European democracies have been made more democratic. Their constitutions were very much, um, you know, you have indirect upper elected upper chambers, you had, uh, you know, systems where, you know, the legislation was blocked through kind of equivalence of filibuster through the late 19th century. You know, European democracies were not particularly democratic in the late 19th century, early 20th century. But over the course of the 20th century, in the particular post-war period, countries, hate to say it, like Denmark, uh, Norway, Sweden, Germany, you know, did things like eliminated their upper chambers altogether, introduced proportional representation, uh, if places had electoral colleges, abolished their electoral colleges. Um, they, you know, in places that kept upper chambers like, like Germany, they made them more proportional to population. So bigger states had more representation than smaller states. All of these measures made these systems more democratic. And I think at the end of the day, made they, these democracies more vital and made them less vulnerable because they allow majorities to speak more forcefully, even in proportional systems. This makes it more difficult for authoritarian minority forces to take over a political system. The United States, you know, we've stopped doing those kinds of institutional reforms roughly around 1970 with the failure of the Electoral College effort to abolish the Electoral College in 1970. And because of that... That was Carter, wasn't it? I, I'm just reading uh, about that in, in Nixon land. Yeah, so the, the first, the, mo the closest effort came in 1970 under Nixon. Nixon supported it. The Chamber of Commerce supported it. The AFL-CIO supported eliminating the Electoral College. Um, the American Bar Association, according to opinion polls, 70% of Americans. So this was something that was very viable to eliminate this. Other democracies have done it. The world hasn't come to an end. And we didn't. And I think in a way we are now, you know, if, if we had abolished that in 1970, it's very unlikely that Donald Trump would have become president in 2016. Could America be Denmark, Daniel? I don't, well, no, I don't think so. I mean, but there are things we can learn. I mean, I think we can learn. I mean, this is one of the things that we have this, you know, there's, America is exceptional in many ways. Um, but at certain moments in our history, the beginning of the 20th century, we, we learned from other democracies to regulate our economies, to city planning. And we also, you know, our universities, the university I teach at Harvard University was based on uh, European university models of granting PhDs. And I think today we can learn from some of these institutional reforms. I mean, there's no cookie cutter 
thing that we adopt every institutional form that's existed in any other democracy. America is much vaster in scale than Denmark. It's a federal system. So in many ways, there's things that don't fit the U.S., but there are certain institutional reforms that we can learn from these other democracies. You mentioned, Daniel, uh, Hungary and Italy. Orban is the pinup, it seems, for some people on the right in America. Uh, Maloney was characterized as a neo-fascist, whatever that means, some association with Mussolini. But most of the media on her has been reasonably positive. Um, is it conceivable that Maloney is the future, uh, a, a populist conservatism, anti-immigrant, but it doesn't necessarily make, make or anti-immigration doesn't necessarily make it anti-democracy? Tell me your interpretation of, of what's happening in Italy and whether we can distinguish uh, Maloney from Orban in terms of these different uh, fashions on the right in, in Europe. It, it is important, but also very difficult to distinguish. I and mean, I spent a lot of my scholarly time trying to do this to kind of figure out what are the differences between uh, you know, these, these far right parties, some of which are really anti-immigrant, but not as directly assaulting democratic norms. So in other words, you know, if a party you know, wants to limit immigrants at the border, that's maybe not something I would support personally, but if they accept election results and they don't use violence to try to gain and hold on to power and they don't uh, associate with groups that do that, then this is not as an overt a threat to democracy. And so- It's not any threat though, Daniel, yeah. is it? I mean, it's quite legitimate to simply say, to, to, to argue that, um, you, that, that we don't believe that uh, large-scale immigration into our country is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this it's again, people may not like that as a position, but one can have policy views on these kinds of questions that are, are perfectly legitimate. Um, you know, what tends to be the case, though, is that many of the parties that do take this stance uh, also associate with groups or don't overtly distance themselves from groups that do engage in violence. I mean, I think the, the AFD in Germany is a model of this. And so you know, that, that's why it's quite tricky. But I think in principle, it should be possible. You know, the Swiss People's Party, which is a kind of far-right party, uh, I would say is not a threat to democracy. Uh, it's a party that's populist, that's demagogic, that is uh, anti-immigrant, but it's not as, you know, it's not as clearly a threat to democracy as the AFD. So one can kind of make these fine distinctions, and I think it's important to, because as one tries to figure out how to deal with them, you know, do you form a, um, you know, I don't think anybody's under any obligation to form a coalition with anybody, but if you're a center-right party, like let's say in Germany, should you form a coalition with the AFD? I would say that's very dangerous. You know, it, in in Sweden, the the Swedish uh, center-right has formed a coalition with the the far right in Sweden, and so I think in some sense it's you know there's a lot of debate now. Is this you know we, uh, is this a threat to democracy or not? And I think the Italian situation is quite similar in the sense that you have a coalition government. Maloney is part of this broader coalition, so she doesn't have single-handed power. That's a big contrast with Hungary. Um, and she seems, while in power, at least so far, to not be directly assaulting the democratic institutions. Now, Viktor Orban is somebody who's very different, who in some ways is the reverse, because he came in, you know, with a kind of liberal background, having been, you know, an opponent of the communist regime and had studied at Oxford, supported by uh, George Soros, and had a kind of reputation of being a kind of, he had drifted to the right over the course of the 1990s became sort of styled himself as a Christian Democrat. But once, so, it, so the alarm bells didn't really go off before he came, got into power. But once in power, he's engaged in acts which I think do violate democratic uh, norms and principles. Not He hasn't tried to steal an election. 
Uh, he hasn't called out, you know, the troops on his opposition, but he has rigged the game, you know, made it just to give some very concrete examples, redrawn the election districts to make it so hard for the opposition to win that it kind of entrenches himself in power. Now, all politicians do that, but in most political systems, both parties do it. And so they kind of counterbalance each other. Viktor Orban had such a large majority that he was able to do this single-handedly, so it was harder to vote him out of power. Um, you know, he revamped the court system to make sure his party was in charge of it. Uh, he's put real pressure on the media to, you know, put pressure on the private media to kind of, uh, to, so that media has been sold to more friendly audiences. So he's he's done things legally. I mean, I really want to emphasize that. he's done things legally, but in a way that at the end of the day has hampered political competition. If you have unfair political competition, this is a problem for democracy. And so that's why I think he has been the kind of poster child for the American anti-democratic right, as well as somebody who I think we should recognize is, is a problem for democracy. He calls himself an illiberal Democrat. Uh, I mean, it's obviously somewhat of a provocation to people like yourself. Can one be an illiberal Democrat? Yeah, that's a debate that lots of people, you know, and political philosophers engage in. I don't think so. I mean, given our current definition of democracy, the kind of modern conception of democracy that, that I think I subscribe to, you know, democracy, to, me, to my mind, consists of three big pillars. Number one, you have an inclusive polity in which as many adults can participate as possible. You don't restrict the right to vote and participation in any adults. That's like one pillar. The second pillar is you have fair competition. You know, one party can't just kind of monopolize power. There's genuine competition where on election night, the incumbent has to be a little worried that they might lose. Uh, and then the third pillar is uh, the, the pillar of civil liberties. You need to have civil liberties, freedom of press, freedom of association. These are the liberal values that underpin a democracy. So if you cut that pillar out and say you're an illiberal democracy, I think you're losing an essential feature of democracy. Now, I think what he means by this is less that third pillar. He means, you know, liberal cultural. He doesn't embrace liberal cultural values, um, you know, which, you know, you might say, well, you could be a kind of populist and not think certain, you know, be against, uh, you know, immigration and so on. But, you know, if that very quickly bleeds into, however, restrictions on rights of individuals based strictly on their background. You know, I'm a, I'm a classical liberal in that I think, you know, all citizens should have equal rights, um, whatever their background. Um, and so if he, by that, by being an illiberal, that, that to me, I think is a liberal. If he doesn't- Even Republicans? Yes, even Republicans. <laughs> um, you know, so anybody who's following the law who, uh, you know, if you break the law, that doesn't mean you have a right not to go to jail. Uh, if you attempt a coup, this doesn't mean you have a right to not be persecuted for, pro prosecuted for that. So, you know, if you break the law, you obviously don't deserve rights, but anybody who's following the law deserves equal rights, equal, you know, equal rights under the law. So uh, that, that's what, what to me to be a liberal is. And I, you know, and I think the concern is that, that to, to proudly proclaim you're an illiberal Democrat, as you say, is a provocation but also suggests a problem for democracy. Uh, your book is called Tyranny, Tyranny of the Minority. One thing that unites left and right media these days is hostility and concern over old politicians, uh, whether it's Pelosi or Feinstein or McConnell or Biden or Trump. They all seem to be enormously old. Your book doesn't talk about the tyranny of, of, of a gerontocracy. Are you concerned with that too? Well, in one way we do actually. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting issue and I think it's a becoming more of an issue. Um, and, you know, partly with 
technology and so on, people can live longer. Uh, that's part of the issue, but there's something else going on that I don't think people have really firmly kind of understood why is this happening, especially in the United States. As, as a comparativist, I can kind of see across countries, this is a distinctive problem in the U.S., maybe in other democracies. I haven't really studied this. But one area where we do in our book talk about this, this issue uh, uh, less directly is in the court system. I mean, the court system, mm. we don't have term limits or retirement ages. And this is even more of a problem in the court system, in a sense, because at least Nancy Pelosi has to run every two years, right? So she's accountable to the voters, you know, even though she has clearly like huge incumbency advantages and so on. She has to put herself up, you know, uh, Diane Feinstein, she's not running again. Uh, and if she were to run again, she would lose. So well, she can't all... run. I don't think she can even walk these days, can yeah. she? So, I mean, that you know, so there is, there is, there are built in mechanisms of constraint in elections. When it comes to judges, you know, we are the only democracy, we make the case in our book, we're the only democracy in the world. I mean, this is borne out by the evidence in which you have neither term limits nor retirement ages for national judges. Now, uh, this, you know, other democracies used to not have retirement ages and uh, uh, term limits. Every other democracy introduced these. We have not for our federal judges. We have this for state judges, you know, you know and so it's, it, this is a kind of distinctive thing about our national judiciary, federal judiciary. And this is a problem with regards to age for the following reason. You know, if somebody's appointed a generation ago, you know, uh, 30, 40 years later, they're still in office. There's no mechanism of accountability. I mean, the, the link to the, 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 to the majority that selected them is 30 years old. And so the idea that they'll be more and more out of sync the longer that people live with majority preferences is a real threat and a real problem. And I think it in large part uh, explains the declining legitimacy of the U.S. Supreme Court today, that there's a sense in which the, the judges themselves don't, you know, judges shouldn't be beholden to majorities. Uh, that's certainly the case. But on the other hand, they shouldn't be so out of sync with majorities that, uh, you know, they're making decisions that really run totally counter to what most people think. And so I think there is that risk in our current system. And so I think other democracies have found a solution to this, and that is by imposing term limits, which would also, by the way, have the effect of reducing the kind of turmoil over each Supreme Court nomination, you know, where there's this gamesmanship, you know, where each president thinks they can, you know, they want to, um, you know, nominate somebody while they're in office. The, the, you know, opposition thinks, well, if we can block it, we can hold this over till the next term. I mean, this is what happened with Merrick Garland and the effort by Obama to appoint him that the Republicans blocked this in the Senate, you know, and this we tempting to engage in on both sides. The way you avoid this altogether is by having term limits. And so each each president gets to appoint two judges. Per term. Yeah. And, then the and, and, it, and it works both ways. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, should have resigned. Let's end, Daniel. Wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Let's end with a return where we started with um, ethnocracy in America. You, you focus on it in the book. I think you acknowledge it's a reality. If... America can reinvent its politics, if it can get beyond its constitution or change its constitution, modernize its constitution. Can America also get beyond the politics of ethnicity? Could we get to a point in the middle of the 21st century where we're not obsessed with race and defining each party, whether they're white or black or brown? Or if we get what you want, which is constitutional reform, which I think probably will eventually happen, could America get locked in an increasingly dangerous spiral of ethnic politics? No, I, th I think the constitutional reforms is the solution to this issue. I mean, that we want to have two parties that can reach out to majorities. 
in order to have two parties to reach out to majorities, by definition, they can't rely on a kind of racialized base. And as that happens, if parties are competing over ideas rather than race, then then race becomes less important. I mean, of course, people have their cultural backgrounds that they uh, embrace and, and, you know, in, in their private lives and so on. But it, our, our politics doesn't need to, you know, if, if we can kind of guarantee political equality uh, uh, of all individuals, independent of race and ethnicity, then race and ethnicity becomes less of a salient feature of our, of our national politics. And I think ultimately, you know, that, that has to be the hope. 